The New Age Christianity Podcast is brought to you by... Hello, New Age Christian family. This is Austin Fletcher. You're listening to the New Age Christian Podcast, and this is episode number 76. Today, I am interviewing Matthew Cortman, the author of Saying No to God. It's a new book out that I saw come across my Facebook feed, oh, I don't know, maybe two months ago. And the moment I saw that title, Saying No to God, I thought, oh, that's going to make some waves. So... Uh, This audience, the New Age Christian audience, is kind of 50-50 between people who have no problem with saying no to God and don't really concern themselves with the Bible and what to do with it. And then about half of you, I know you still struggle with what to do with the Bible. What do you do with some of the stories in there? What do you do with this idea that there's no fallacy in the Bible or that it was written by God himself? And I've done some episodes on the Bible in in previous uh, episodes, but maybe this episode will help you take it a little bit further, take that discussion further, and uh, let's have some fun and see what he has to say. All right, New Age Christian family, here we are with Matthew Corpman, the author of Saying No to God. Say hi, Matthew. Hi, uh, thank you so much, Austin, for bringing me on to uh, the show. I'm really honored to have a chance to come by and talk with you. Appreciate awesome. it. So, um, Saying No to God, I saw that title come across my Facebook feed. Oh, I don't know. It was a couple months ago, I think, when you first came out with it. I actually went and checked out your website. Nice website, by the way. I build, I build websites for a living. I, I, owe the, I owe the website to my publisher, particularly Raphael Polendo. So thank you, Ralph, for um, <laughs> the honor of designing such a nice website. Yeah, it's great. So I saw the title saying no to God. I thought, okay, well, that's provocative enough. Um, I love the cover, everything like that. And um, I had a feeling that we would meet at some point because I saw that you were kind of circling in a lot of the same people groups that I circle in. I know you've been on uh, Reckless Pursuit. Um, Heck, even the introductory uh, statements about your book in your book from some of my favorite authors like Brian McLaren and uh, I know Jeff Turner and a lot of those people. Do you know Jamie Englehart? I actually don't. No. In fact, I've I've actually never heard the name. Um, He's uh, really close with Jeff Turner and Lynn Hyde. I should be really close to him. Right. <laughs> I love I love Jeff's work. The Atheistic Theist is uh, one of my favorite books. Um, okay, uh, it's been a huge influence on me. Turner is just he's a genius. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's also uh, yeah he's very articulate. I've seen a few times. I've, yeah, he's come up here to a, a church up here once in a while. But yeah, Jamie Englehart, he's uh, what I would call my spiritual father. Um, oh wow! And he runs. You know, he's really close with Jeff and with uh, Lynn Hiles and. A couple other people that are, he's still pretty much in the church world, but uh, in private conversations with him, you know, some of the stuff that he pushes into and, and uh, we have, he's, what I love about him is his ability, he, like nothing phases him, right? You can tell him, I believe that aliens are run, are, you know, that the Pope is an alien. He'd be like, okay, you know, and he just doesn't, nothing <laughs> shocks him. It's all good. He's, he's kind of got, anyways, I just talked, met with him on Monday. So I'll have to introduce you to him, but uh, I would love that. So saying no to God, I mean, clearly that title says a lot. 
And before we get into the book, as I told you kind of before the, this, we started, that this community, New Age Christian community, is largely a community of journeyers. It's, a large, it's people that have, in, in many ways, learned how to say no to God in their own version. So I'd like them to get to know you. I'd like to, I'd like to know your story a little bit. And, um, you know, just here, you know, my main question is, uh, you grew up in church, right? Mm-hmm. If you can summarize in less than five hours <laughs> what your journey was to kind of get to this place where you realized the value and what led you to this title and this message. That is a journey that is, uh, is hard to condense. So I grew up uh, and still am a Seventh-day Adventist. So that already kind of makes me rather unique as an author, just because um, there are not that many Adventists who write books for a general Christian audience, okay. um, tend to be much more cloistered. So one of the few to, to venture that way. So what kind of a journey leads me to end up going that direction? Well, I grew up fairly conservative and at points uh, got involved with fundamentalism in various Adventist forms uh, when I was a teenager they tended to be in various qualities of like King James onlyism, or um, I mean, not that I like, I never bought into it, but I was exposed to people who were like promoting it. And that would make me go, well, that's so strange. Like, why are their verses missing? Why are people taking right. I was exposed to like the Adventist versions of the Illuminati conspiracy, um, which have nice. their own flavors <laughs> that are very different from. We'll the, have to talk about that in another. Episode. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I've gone in and out of seeing like what a really extreme conservatism can look like, as well as just sort of a moderate run of the mill conservatism in Christianity. And because even though some of the Adventists are not evangelicals, they're heavily influenced by a lot of evangelical groups, or at least like a lot of televangelists who are Adventists get influenced by evangelicals who then like through that influence, influence others. So I feel like I have a fairly good understanding of what uh, a lot of evangelicals grew up with and also experienced in their own way. I have my own particular flavors of it, but in many ways I think I can relate to, most of the problems that people did, except with the one exclusion, perhaps, that Adventists don't believe in the eternal burning hell doctrine. Mm. So that was always a crazy thing that other Christians were nuts to believe in. Funny enough, a lot of evangelicals give Adventists a break on that. They don't persecute us for it, and they try to like act like we're their, their siblings. Whereas Rob Bell, one of them, gets excommunicated because he writes a book that amounts to just a bunch of questions. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> right? Like, like, I mean, Adventists have literally have in their core doctrinal writings that basically hell is a satanic deception that Satan is trying to pull over the wool of all Protestants. But, you know, Rob Bell just asking some questions yeah. in the book about like, well, what if? No, <laughs> yeah, what that, about that verse? This that, is an odd verse. Yeah. That gets a whole crazy media blitz. Um, so it's because well, he was you know. he was he was an evangelical like uh, he was one like, of them, darling. He was right. the darling, and then he dared ask that. Question. Yeah, no, no. It's also kind of like in the early few centuries where you have Christians, you know, and um, the Romans didn't have a problem with you know ethnic Jews doing their Jewish thing. 
but then they had Gentiles doing the Jewish thing, and it's like, what? No, <laughs> we can't have the spreading. It was one thing when it was just them. <laughs> we we tolerate that. They're ancient, but these Christians, they're this is crazy. Right, same belief, but no, it's not. Yeah, because it suddenly went beyond bloodlines. Right. Oh, so man. you know, I feel like in that it's kind of analogous. You know, oh well, we're used to it. Those Adventists, they're crazy people. But <laughs> Bell, no, oh my gosh. Um, not not Rob Bell. <laughs> Jesus number two. No, um, <laughs> this is totally off the subject. But are Adventists are they futurists when it comes to end times theology, or are they preterists? They're neither. They're historicists. Oh, okay. There is a third option. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're actually, the, practically speaking, the only group that's held out from the historicist position. Which, for those that don't know, used to be the only position primarily that was in Protestantism from like Luther onward. The problem is that with historicism, which is basically the idea that prophecies are about you in your present time, not what will end up happening, not what did end up happening, but like at the present, you're living them, right? This is like the mindset. Like I read Revelation, it's happening now. Incomplete, but it's occurring now. Um, not that it's going to begin in the future. So the problem with that is that since Luther lived way before other people who kept the belief, right, everybody kept reimagining what the details of that would mean. And so right. technically, like, there's almost no similarities between, like, the details of each historicist kind of interpretation. And that just led to a bunch of problems in the um, early 1800s that kind of culminated in some big movements and events that eventually made a lot of Christians give up on the idea of historicism and they kind of ended up going towards the direction of futurism and preterism. Right. It but, either so, it will happen or it has happened, but continuing yeah. to reinterpret it as it's happening now, eventually you're like, but which one was the real one? And yeah. So Adventists if- have still stuck to by and large a historicist view but there are different flavors of that within Adventism. There are For some sure. who will combine preterism with historicism, and that especially people who study biblical scholarship and are, are aware of like a lot of the history. But yeah, so Adventists are, are a unique bunch. Um, you know, they can seem very strange. And at the same time, though, they often find themselves kind of in the middle between evangelicals on the right and mainline Protestants on the left. So at times, that middle ground proves very helpful. For me, particularly growing up, it proved helpful because it gave me a perspective that didn't have to feel torn in one direction or the other, particularly in regards to like inerrancy. So growing up, the evangelical influence on Adventism gave me the idea of inerrancy through what I heard preached. But because Adventists are against inerrancy by doctrine, it was never taught as a doctrine. So they didn't teach the other way. They just didn't teach. Yeah. So evangelicals will actually be like, let's do a sermon on the inerrancy of scripture. There was never that and and still isn't in Adventism. Usually what you'll Mm -hmm. get perhaps is a televangelist or a pastor who's been influenced by ideas of inerrancy. And so when they preach the words and the way they talk about things are in such a way that unless you know, you're dimwitted, you're probably going to assume that, well, yeah, if God commanded these things and God said those things, then yeah, naively, I'm going to understand that like, obviously this is God speaking in these things. Like this is an accurate record of these things. And so you can get the contours of inerrancy, even if you don't get like a manual on it, a treatise. 
But because Adventism was not inerrantist by its core doctrine, so growing up, I was in this weird middle ground of hearing these views, but then learning that actually my church doesn't hold to that kind of perspective. <laughs> so it gave me this unique middle ground to kind of look oddly at both sides and start to analyze like, well, what's going on here? What's, what is the main issues that grow from this? And then having that experience growing up, my mother had raised me in a particular way in which and I'm not sure it was intentional or just part of her character, the way she was as a Christian. She raised me to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but kind of set that on one side and set doctrines on a different side without discounting either. So it's like she just never made it an issue to think like the doctrines are intricately connected with your relationship with Jesus. Right. So when I started my deconstruction journey, which was just as I graduated out of high school, I found Bart Ehrman's uh, book, uh, Misquoting Jesus. And it was the first time that I was exposed to textual criticism or biblical scholarship. I mean, before then, I thought like a biblical scholar was, you know, some televangelist preacher who, you know, super dedicated. And I, and I thought, well, you know, professors, I, I've never heard about them, but I guess that's just where you go when you can't cut being a preacher. Um, <laughs> I, I would have probably told it to you in that way because I literally never heard of any professor in my denomination ever, just period. It was just always pastors. So that's the power of, you know, influence in terms of what you see. So then I went ahead and found myself uh, reading Ehrman and going, wow. And whereas like other evangelicals reported like, oh my goodness, I lost my faith. Oh my goodness, my world was crashing down. For me, it was the opposite. I was excited. I mean, I right. was one, I was very angry that the pastors that I had heard preach about the origins of the Bible had totally gotten it wrong. That was really <laughs> angering. But I wasn't mixing that up with God because I had doctrines on one side and Jesus on the other. So when the doctrine started to go through struggles, I was like, okay, cool. I want to know what the real thing is. Cause I mean, this is who I'm worshiping. This right. is what I dedicated it's, my interest to not this. So I need to find the real thing that, that matches this. It's amazing um, when people tie doctrines to Jesus so tightly, it's toxic. That you can't ask a question without them thinking that you're trying to take their God. And it's and in truth, that's you said it right. You are taking their God, right? Their it's God. So, yeah, <laughs> when it's so it's tightly idol. tied, that it is literally. Let me ask you about hell. And they're like, you're saying God doesn't exist. You're like, what the? How does that one plus one equal twenty? When did this happen? You just totally multiplied everything I just said. I'm just asking. Let's have a discussion about hell. And you're afraid I'm trying to take your God from you. It's because I think it's beautiful. You the way you've expressed, like your grandma helped you figure out, was it your grandma or your mother? I can't remember what you said. My mom. About, you know, keeping... But my grandma was also amazing. But no, in this case, it was my mom. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm referencing, I read your intro and your, you talked about your grandma and your relationship with your grandma in your book, I think. But uh, how your mom, you know, taught you keeping Jesus over here and the doctrines and they don't have to be this married relationship. They can be, you can have a discussion about anything. That is one of the things I found, one of the... I did an episode with my one of my best friends, Christopher Teasdale, and we talked about giving the episode was you know, how to give yourself permission. Hmm. It was permission basically in, in a fancy or an easy way to say what we were doing was separate your relationship over here with the doctrines that you think define that relationship and realize that you can question the doctrines over and over and over 
And it doesn't have to mean that your relationship with Jesus or Father or even with the Bible has to constantly be under threat. And we don't give ourselves permission to ask new questions. We don't give ourselves permission to think differently. You were raised in a way that it sounds like you were kind of always, you grew up under permission. And to be clear, like for those who are listening, who may not understand some of the words where you, you know, like evangelicals, that is how I grew up. It's your typically your American Christian normal. Yeah. All the way from Pentecostal to Baptist, in my mind, is kind of that evangelical, we need to go save the world, we need to evangelize people to bring them to Jesus. And then you have these groups like Seventh-day Adventists that kind of don't view things, or a pure Calvinist actually is as a very, my brother's a pure Calvinist, and he's got a very interesting view on evangelism and stuff like that. But for those of us who grew up evangelical, it's weird to even stop and think, wait a minute, there's people out there who are Christians who don't just assume that the Bible has no errors. That's what inerrancy is. Yeah. That they actually have studied. What's the the name of that book again that you read that about the the inerrancy of the scripture? Uh, Misquoting Jesus by Bart Ehrman. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening and you want to challenge your view of the Bible... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I remember reading that book and a few others around that time of like, holy crap. Like I remember just realizing, so if this is how we got the Bible that we have, and when you study the Nicene councils and you study the different ways in which they decided which scriptures we would have and which ones we wouldn't have and the corruption and the, Oh my God, the politicking. And I mean, there's a lot of scary stuff where you realize maybe this book isn't as holy and perfect and inerrant as I have been taught. Then that creates a real crisis of faith for people. As you said, a lot of people, you know, like they lost their faith over it. But for you, interestingly, it gave, it excited you and got you. Well, because funny enough, before that happened, I was actually pretty, I'd say nominal. I was kind of getting very bored with the Bible because once you're told as a teenager for too long and you've grown up with this, like, you know, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, you know. And, and right. once you start looking at the Bible, it's like, you just need these basic bullet points. And in Adventism, you just need these other bullet points about what to watch out for with when, you know, the end time starts and well, what will be the main test and what do you avoid. When you've got stuff like that, you kind of just you stop caring about scripture because it's like, well, who cares if I don't know a story in the book of numbers, because it's not going to make a difference if I get saved or not. So if you know, it's not going to make a difference and it's, I don't, well, too bad. I don't know it. So I started to get very bored with everything because there was no role for me in it. There was nothing I had to partake in or give back to the Christian faith. I was just a passive recipient. And when you are only a passive recipient, Well, yeah, you just kind of lose steam, you know, and that probably explains why for a lot of conservative groups, mission work becomes so big, uh, because that's about the only thing seemingly, you know, that's not passive that you can do. Um, You actually get a role. (laughs) You don't have to just come and be fed. You can actually go feed other people. So the funny thing about it was is that after that experience, I went to college because for, I actually didn't even want to go to college. I didn't have a, I just wanted to write novels and, uh, and really 
yeah, maybe become a best-selling author. That's what you hope for when you're when you're seventeen. Right, nobody writes novels to sell five, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long process to write any book. Right. Um, and I had been writing novels since I was like fourteen years old, so I I had a long history of of just writing and enjoying wordcraft. But uh, I went to college, I decided, well, I, I should probably study this stuff that I'm reading in Ehrman's book and so forth. And I should probably study it with people who are really smart and, and studied it too. And uh, that will probably help me. So I was really driven by this interest to just really understand what the Bible was and to get a better perspective on it. So when I was in undergraduate, which was at La Sierra University in Riverside, California, I went ahead and was in a class on ethics. And I tell the story in, in the book, in the introduction, how my professor went ahead and shared this really famous problem that Socrates gave in one of mm-hmm. um, Plato's dialogues. And it was, uh, it's called Euthyphro's Dilemma. And basically the story is, is that Euthyphro is having this huge dilemma about something. And he, Socrates decides, well, let's think about this, you know, what is really good? Where does goodness or morality really come from? And uh, what he raises as a question is the dilemma that if goodness is what God commands, then goodness doesn't really exist. Morality is fictional. Whatever God commands is what is good, so it's arbitrary. And then the other solution is that uh, morality or goodness is distinct from God. And if that's the case, then morality rivals God and God becomes redundant. So then how is God actually connected to morality at all? And the way he put the question, he put it as a question, which was, you know, do the gods like what is, is something good because the gods like it or do the gods like it because it's good? Right. That's the way that Socrates asked the question. So what was fascinating, of course, was that the class I was in did not like the either option. And I think like most Christians don't like either option because it just that's why it's a terrible dilemma. You're like, wait a minute, this, this doesn't seem good. And some Christians have tried to get around the dilemma by proposing that it's not really a dilemma at all in regards to the idea that actually, you know, God is goodness. So then... It's not that he says something and it's good. It's that God is good. So whatever good says is automatically good. The problem with that is that you're still identifying morality and goodness solely on the basis of whatever God's saying. So you don't really escape anything. Like the dilemma is still there. You just read, yeah, you kind still of mix the words around, but you still end up with the problem that you're still claiming that as far as we're concerned, and can perceive morality as whatever God is, is speaking. Yeah. So if God says, you know what, I want you to kill your neighbor, then apparently now killing your neighbor is good. And the funny thing is, is that is actually the very logic that evangelicals support. I mean, they, yes. they'll tell you immediately, hold on, hold on a minute. God wouldn't tell you to do that. But <laughs> Have you read the Old Testament? <laughs> that was that. But the reality is if you actually push them, you know, beyond their pastoral mode, beyond their, private convictions of what God is currently interested in doing. The truth of the matter is, is that when you push them on biblical stories, which is a lot easier to push them on, and you say, well, I don't think God would have killed all these Canaanites. Well, then, right, the logic has to be used. And they admit, well, actually, 
if God did it, then you're not in a position to question it because God is morality and God is good. And if God says it, then theoretically he has better wisdom on this issue than you do. And you're right. fallen and you don't have a good understanding oh my of what's gosh. right and wrong. And you, you can't really tell what's right and wrong because your morality is so God forsaken that something that appears evil to you might actually be good. And these ideas. But then those same people, time out. So then those same people will tell you that you inherently know what is good and evil. You don't need a list of rules and, and laws. And you're <laughs> like, wait a minute. Wait, whoa, whoa. You just told me that I don't know. So I must need the law. Right? And it's also redundant. Exactly. I mean, first of all, they themselves don't actually believe this, except when it's it's helpful to them in their argument right. about some passage. What is but also the fact, it doesn't even make sense, biblically speaking, just from the perspective of why are there moral teachings at all in the Bible that are given without a command? I mean, yeah, you have commands in the Bible. You also have just straight up morality teachings and ideals and principles. And it doesn't really make sense why you even do principles if, in fact, it's just exactly whatever God says. So at that point, you know, morality just becomes outsourced to quote uh, Phil Zuckerman in his book. Uh, uh, you know, it just becomes sort of uh, follow Sergeant Rex, whatever he has to say, you know, you do. You, it's you, a law. Basically, you might have a morality, but you put a big, you know, poster of Sergeant Rex or Hitler or God or whatever. And right. so now you can't even actually see what in fact is your moral compass because it's just whatever this thing you put over it that's what you're going to do not your own guidance or feelings it drives people nuts it drives evangelicals nuts when you take them through this discussion and then what you point them to is the fact that they're still under the law because that's exactly yeah, where that's, a, that's an interesting way of putting it i hadn't thought of, of it in those terms but yeah i that's, mean that's, that is sergeant rex it is you need an external system of rules and that external system is given to you by an external God. And when he changes the rules, you have to say, yes, sir. And as opposed to the spirit that would lead you to all truth, right? And that then, you know, this is New Age Christianity, you know, New Age Christians who listen to this, they're, they're very aware of the reality to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him. It is sin. And it has nothing to do with, Hey, you know, <laughs> yeah. So it's, there is the reality of the personal conviction, the personal knowing. And in most evangelical concepts, there's no room for that because there needs to be a list of rules. And then you tell them, so basically what you're saying is, is you need law. And they yeah. go, well, no, well, no, but crap. Not those just... Old Testament laws specifically, <laughs> right. but, but they just change. <laughs> I, the I remember in college, the same. I remember in college going, I had a great teacher, uh, Byron Joyner, who was the youth pastor of the church I went to. And uh, they started a college night called Sanctuary After Dark. It was super edgy. And uh, <laughs> and the, I remember it was one of the first or second thing. There was, the, do you remember the guy who killed that abortion doctor, like sniped him and said God told him to do it? This was, man, this was back in... I don't remember the event personally, but I think I read a book that recounted... It was like back story. in 2000 or something like that. Um, somewhere in there... And so he goes, he goes, so this guy said God told him to do it, that this doctor had killed over 100,000 babies. So what do you believe about abortion? What do you believe about, yeah. you know, and if God, are you sure God didn't tell him to do it? Right. Yeah. Are you sure that in this case, murder was not what God wanted? You know, and you're like, holy crap. And that was, I remember that was the question for me that suddenly crumbled all of the certainty that I had 
in what was right and what was wrong. And I realized that gray areas had to have an answer. And it took me years and years and years to find that answer. But uh, yeah, this is a huge thing that for most evangelicals just leads them back to going, oh crap, I guess I really do need a system of rules and laws outside of myself if I'm going to keep believing that what God says is good, regardless of my own internal questioning of it, which obviously your book, Saying No to God, it's again, we're, we're getting there, but I love it. But the Bible also warns, I mean, at least when I say the Bible, I mean, certain prophets in the Bible did warn against this sort of view. I mean, Isaiah has a text where he says, you know, woe unto those that will call good evil and evil good, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> and I mean, an evangelical might sit there and think like, oh, woe is those who re- say no to God's commandments. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, no, it's not that simple. Isaiah is assuming you can know what is good and what is evil. And in fact, this, for goodness sakes, there are texts in the Bible where explicitly the characters say, you know what is good or you know the right way mm-hmm. and you should, right? Like if it, we were robots that just had to trust and obey and that was all there was to say, then, you know, there'd be no other way. But the fact of the matter is there is in fact many other ways that the Bible definitely through its many authors and books demonstrates. Jesus certainly operates on that principle. But the thing that I found with um, Euthyphro's Dilemma when I was in that class is that when I had read the story of Moses in Exodus 32, where God says, I'm going to kill all the Israelites down at the bottom of Mount Sinai, every man, woman, and child, and I'm going to start everything over with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, you can't do that. And then it says God changed his mind and he didn't do it. And for me, Euthyphro's dilemma was a problem because that story didn't fit any of the three approaches to that dilemma. Right. Because here, and this was the important point, Moses makes the argument that God can't do it because he says God isn't this way. So he bases his argument in God to argue against God right. and wins. And that unique twist was enough to make me realize that there's something going on, at least in this one story, and as I found out in a number of stories in the Bible, in which this does not pan on to inerrancy, it doesn't pan on to divine command theory, it doesn't fit in Euthyphro's dilemma. The Bible in these stories is presenting some other completely different paradigm in regards to God, morality, and the importance of his words versus his character. And I wanted to explore that. So I went ahead and uh, I was in the honors program and we had to do a community involvement project. And I said, um, hey, can you know, I write a book that's supposed to affect communities and try to bring, uh, bridge the gap between super liberals and super conservatives and find some sort of a middle ground that maybe they could reach. And I'm just lucky that the very good professor who was helping me went ahead and said, sure, I mean, he wasn't sure I'd actually write very much, but he, he was like, all right, sure. I mean, everyone else is like going to puppy shelters and <laughs> doing other things. I'm like, can I write a book? Um, and he was surprised when I finished the draft in time and gave him a complete manuscript. <laughs> but um, it would still be like two years after that before the book was finally edited and finished. And it went through a lot of revisions and changes. But 
it was really a journey, partly on my own interest to know, well, what is going on? But then also as I kept going through that journey and kind of exploring this whole other side to the Bible with pretty much a litany of stories that people just skip over. And that was the thing, like almost all the stories that I was right. interested in are the stories that everybody's like, Ugh. and it's always for, you know, like the Exodus 32 <laughs> story. The reason why so many people don't want to deal with it is precisely because the, the text that says, and God changed his mind and things like that are the ones that are looking at it. They're like open theists. They're like people who are interested in God and how he relates to time and, and what is the possibility of change in the divine. I was like, you know, those are all fascinating philosophical questions that obviously very philosophically interested people would be very philosophically interested in. <laughs> but there's a really basic question that seems to be like really basic. Like anybody in a pew can go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why is Moses telling God no? Right. Where does <laughs> Moses get the idea that he has any ability to say, thy will not be done. And I mean, that's the first one. And then the second one is to say, and where do we get the idea that God says, you're right, my will not be done. Yep. That automatically at the start of it just was like, I thought were the two most fundamental questions that could evolve from those passages. And so people are so concerned about God, they're not paying any attention to Moses. And Moses, and then also as I explore in other stories, really then lays the groundwork to say, there's this whole paradigm in these stories about the relationship between the divine and humanity and the dialectic between them that really makes all the difference in terms of how we begin to approach so many issues that we're currently going nowhere in circles about. I, it's, I'm so tempted to, we don't have to just park on this point, but I believe just to skip to the end for those who are listening for myself and, and the new age Christian concept of, you know, I love it. Thy will not be done is where does Moses get off on, on, <laughs> exactly. on being able to say this? It's because God had already instilled in him the very essence of the I am. It's, this, it's the very thing that says, Moses, when the people ask you who sent you, say, I am. And there, in that is buried this little, this trick that, Moses, I am you. You are me. Mm -hmm. And so that in the dialogue between humanity and God is buried the oneness of humanity and God. And that he's not just looking for robots. He's looking for physical manifestations of himself. And... I think there is definitely more philosophical aspects to that rabbit trail. And <laughs> some might even say it's, it's a never ending philosophical debate at this point until we see the full manifestation of God in humanity. But to me, that is uh, very much the, the skip to the end. The answer being that, that we are him and he is us and that we are one. And so when Moses says, no, far be it from you, it's still God saying that, no, I am good. And it's a beautiful element of dialogue between the universal mind known as God and the individual expression of God known as Moses and ever all the other characters. I'm gonna, so I love how you start your book out under doubt, with the first chapter of Doubt Everything. Is it the first chapter? Um, you talk about doubting Thomas. And 
I've taught for years how doubting Thomas got a bad rap because he just happened to be the last guy to doubt. <laughs> but now, literally all the other apostles doubted as well. They ran to the two. And, you know, Mary comes and says, hey, he's risen. They're like, no, he's not. You know, they all doubted. They just happened to be there when he showed up that time. And he wasn't there, poor guy. <laughs> you know, so go into a little bit more um, the premise of the book. We've talked a lot about it, but uh, you know, what's your major intent behind? What are, what are you hoping people get out of the book? Sure. Um, so let me try to to tackle the three things you brought up. So the first one, I'd say, I was just reading somebody, a theologian, who was pointing out that like the way they put it about human nature is we have a predisposition to good and I'm not sure if he said a pretension or a, uh, it's like, I'll just say pretension, but I don't think that was the exact word, a pretension towards evil. So it's like, it's not the case that we're like, we're individuals who are completely fallen and hollow and we're just, it's original sin and, and we're just so terrible that when God looks at us, there's nothing redeemable. But it's also not the case, like a liberal paradise in the case where it's like, oh, there's only original blessing and you're just the absolute perfect mirror of God. There's this incorrect, chaotic mix of these two elements together within humans where both are pulling in the right direction. It's not that one only pulls and you've got to find the other somewhere else, but both are already there from the start and they're both pulling you in different ways. And the reason I, I like that is because in the stories that I'm looking at, and this, I don't know if this is really, I would say this is a real difference between us. It may just be the, maybe an issue of words, but like the way that I would see it based off the stories that I'm reading is that, uh, or at least the way that these stories imply, human beings are being pulled in these stories with God because this is the trajectory that my book goes in is to argue that basically these are like tests. These are like mm -hmm. uh, fertile grounds on which human beings make the decisive choice whether or not they're worshiping the I am or whether or not they're worshiping some other God and they'd be fine with just having anybody else sit in the place of God as long as they had that power. So for instance, in each of the stories that I look at, and we'll go more into this perhaps a little bit later, the character is always responding against God to say no because of an issue to do with God's identity. So whether or not it's to say, no, you're not a God of vengeance, you're a God of mercy, to say, no, you're not a God of injustice, you're a God of justice. God is presenting God's self in kind of an analogous way to some other foreign deity or to some other God who would not care. So he basically betrays himself to kind of use Roland's and Zizek's uh, way of describing it. He kind of betrays himself in order to see whether or not the beloved Moses in this case will recognize the betrayal and then still seek out the one that they love, which is the opposite of this image that they're facing. When Jacob is wrestling with the divine one at the Jabbok River, he says, I'm not going to let you go. Uh, you know, you can't just come here to curse me. You've got to leave with a blessing. And that's as much about Jacob wanting to get some sort of a blessing as much as it is about affirming that God is not a curse. God is a blessing. And I'm not going to let you leave me with the image of you as a curse because I know you're not. So you're going to show me that I do know you. So 
in that kind of a mentality here, right, Moses could very well fail, in my view. He could very well go ahead and say, oh, sure, thy will be done. Whatever you say, then right. that's what is. And in that moment, he fails to incarnate the divine within him because if God's really in him, he's going to respond to God the same way he would respond to the devil. He's going to say, no, this is not right. This is not godly. And for that to happen, though, right, you have to have the character of God so instilled in you, so incarnated in you, that not even God can go astray and you would go with it. Right. You're going to hold to God's character so strongly that not even God can budge it. And I mean, to be honest, that's not really a radical idea. We've had this kind of concept of incarnation for throughout Christian history. We like to say, even in evangelical circles and Adventist circles, people like to say, well, you've been called to be an ambassador for Christ. You've been called to be a representative of Christ. And what does that really mean? It's the same thing as saying you're incarnating Christ. You are to become, right. as Luther said, you know, you are to become another Christ, uh, an image of the Christ that somebody can see you and they see Christ in you and they see Christ through you. For that to occur, you have to recognize kind of in these stories, this tension between the possibility that you haven't really learned who God is and you'll fall into the trap of accepting the wrong kind of command or you have figured out who God is and you're going to fight for it as much as possible because once you have gold, you're not willing to give it up unless it's to help somebody, but certainly not to curse somebody. So I think that in that sense, right, when we go over to say the story of Thomas that you brought up that I bring, I have the chapter on, it's not just that the disciples doubt Mary. I mean, the disciples doubt Jesus even when he comes to them in Luke, right? Um, you know, right. so like they, they double doubt two times. What I find the most fascinating is that in John's gospel, what is the reason that Thomas is not there? Thomas is said to not be in the upper room because, well, essentially what it says is that the disciples were in fact those who were terribly afraid. They're hiding in that upper room. They're afraid of who would find them. But Thomas is out and about. Right. So what does it mean? If we think really quickly, like if it says everybody's here because they're afraid and Thomas is not there, what does that mean? It means Thomas is not afraid. It means Thomas is probably the guy who feels bold enough to go out and get supplies, feels bold enough to keep up communication and learn what's going on, right? So instead of doubting Thomas, right, since they all doubt, Really, it's fearless Thomas. This is right. Thomas who's bold and he goes out and apparently he's willing to risk his life for what he stood for with Jesus because he's not desperately trying to protect it in the same way that Peter and the others are. So in that respect, right, what then is it that God is really getting upset about with Thomas? If doubt is something they all do and if doubt is intrinsically not really bad, as I try to argue in that chapter, well, what is the issue that Thomas really gets in trouble for? And the issue is, it's what Thomas says. He says, I will never believe unless I can touch you, unless I have proof in front of me. And what he's really saying is, I will not believe unless I have absolute certainty. I will not believe unless I have the very essence of the evangelical desire 
for certainty, orthodoxy, and complete certitude. It's not doubt that gets Thomas in trouble. It's certainty. <laughs> it's the desire right. to have everything in a neat box and have no possibility of doubt. <laughs> that's what Jesus gets upset about. And that's what Jesus is, and why Jesus says, you know, blessed will be those who've never seen and still believed. Because it's not that they doubt. Because Matthew's gospel at the very end shows that when Jesus is ascending into heaven, some of the disciples were doubting it. And what did he do? He commissioned them. There was no, oh, I'm so sorry, you have doubts about your baptismal vows? Well, then we can't go on with the baptism. Right. Jesus is like, no, you're going under. It's okay. That's <laughs> part of the process. You know, oh, I want you to go preach about the good news and about me ascending, but I'm doubting whether you really are ascending. It's okay. You'll figure that out later, but I'm giving you the commission. And that's really excellent to see those kinds of examples in scripture because what it kind of helps you to realize is where is God really taking this? This is a dynamic relationship. This is something that's extremely human and fluid. It doesn't expect something from you that you're not. And in fact, to try to deny those things, to deny the reality you live in, is what ends up getting Jesus's ire because it leads you in directions you shouldn't be going. So you, your third point that you raised to me was to say, okay, well, what is the basic premise of this idea? So on the one hand, you could say there's two basic premises that are going on here. One would be that in the biblical stories of Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Job, and in the New Testament with the Syrophoenician woman and with Jesus' mother, along with others, what we see here is tales that have human characters telling God no, but only telling God no because they're basing their negative, their negation, specifically to something that they've understood about what God is, right? right. And now that's sometimes something God has already taught or shown, but sometimes that's something that they've intuited from God. So for instance, I talk about how... Um, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is having a debate with the Jewish leaders, he says, you know, you seek to kill me. And this demonstrates that you're not like Abraham, because Abraham never sought to kill. And Abraham's children would never seek to kill. But you, you're like of the devil, because you want someone to die. Now, that's so fascinating because the only story in which Abraham is involved in not want or like the issue of killing in this kind of a capacity is the Isaac narrative. And what's so fascinating is that um, the way Jesus is presenting it is that Abraham did not want to and would not kill. And that's a very strange kind of twist for people who are used to thinking of the Abraham Isaac story as just like straight obedience. But in fact, a careful reader of Abraham's story will notice like several moments in which the doubt in the story starts to come out where Abraham promises his servants that Isaac's coming back with me down the mountain or when he tells the servants when he tells Isaac something other than you is going to be sacrificed there's these interesting moments in which you realize where Jesus is drawing on that and I'm not going to go fully into it because I mean it took a chapter to kind of lay out right that's why you got to buy the book Right? I mean, but not specifically to buy the book. It's just there's limits on what you can talk about. Right, but the thing sure. is, where is Abraham going to get those kind of intuited doubts about whether or not this is truly God's will? That's not coming from a prior teaching. That's not coming from something that he was already told. That's 
figuring out the trajectory of the kind of God that you believe in and beginning to realize, even though I've not been told this explicitly, I can figure out that this would be the direction it's supposed to be going in. And right. this wouldn't add up. And that kind of understanding, right? We see in the Bible then characters who are relating to God and they're understanding God in such a way that they are realizing that they don't have to just accept whatever God tells them. There are times where if something God tells them and it goes against what they understand about God, they have a right to stand against it or to object to it and potentially even fully just abdicate it and have nothing to do with it. Now, we don't have God today. We don't have God in front of us to have a debate with or to fight verbally with, as these stories indicate. So do these stories tell us something? And the answer would be yes. So this is the second point. If characters in the Bible can freely disagree with God on certain merits and certain points based in this kind of hermeneutic, then it makes sense that almost certainly human beings can disagree with writers of the Bible who were human, who are recording things about what God said. Right. Right. Like if it's okay to disagree with the Almighty directly, then it's completely okay to disagree with his servants and what they say if you're doing it, you know, under the right reasons, which <laughs> I go into in like the end of the book, I have a chapter about like, there are stories in the Bible of people who disagree with God and it goes terribly wrong and stories where it goes terribly right. And, you know, for the most part, the, the controlling factor is whether or not you understand God's character. So Jonah gets it terribly wrong because he knows God's a God of mercy and he hates it. He wants right. God to be a God of, of, just pure angry justice that takes away people and doesn't give them a second chance because that benefits him against his enemies. Right. Whereas like Abraham is fighting for justice. So he ends up with a very different story because of the fact that they may know the character of God, but do they like it? Are they fighting for it? Do they care about it? So I think what my book really tries to do is to kind of help Christians realize that the Bible's own internal idea about how to read it and understand it and how to intuit God's will from it already includes the failsafe that you're free to disagree with God and the writers in it. Right. And this book that's inerrant within it carries the idea that maybe even God himself is errant. Well, but that's not in my <laughs> book right now. I mean, that's totally, that's totally an acceptable way someone could try to read it. What my book tries to argue, though, is that it's curious that in each story in which this principle is told, the characters are always affirming that what they're disagreeing with God comes from God himself. Sure. Never is it that it's their own autonomous morality or that they have a better idea. They're always rooting it in that God has suddenly changed for them from who he was. And now we're disagreeing because of the change. And what's really interesting, like say in Exodus 32 with Moses, is that two chapters later, God comes and says, well, Moses, uh, you told me to show me your ways during that fight. I'm going to show you my ways, what I've always been. And then what ends up happening? God ends up describing himself as always forgiving, always loving, not vengeful, always caring, or, right? Like the total opposite of what God is looking like in two chapters earlier when it's like, I want to slaughter everybody. So the way that God is presented now in this big speech is exactly what Moses believed God was. So now you run into this kind of interesting dilemma of like, 
well, why is it that God was one way? God then suddenly acts a totally different way. And then at the end, after he was rebutted for it, God ends up telling that person, this is who I've always been. You were right. So now the question becomes, is this, is this God literally having an identity crisis in these stories? Does God like forget who he is and then he's called back? Or is it all a ruse? And where you might see it as kind of a ruse um, really well is like in the story of the Syrophoenician woman. So there you have Jesus. And the best version of this is in Matthew because that's where it's like explicitly like a joke. You have Matthew's (laughs) gospel that records the Syrophoenician woman who is going ahead and calling out as Jesus and the disciples are walking. And she's just like, please, please help heal my daughter. Please, please. And she's crying and crying. And Jesus is ignoring her. Matthew says. He just ignores her. And the disciples are so weirded out by this. They're so weirded out. Like why they tell him, why are you not sending her away if you clearly have no interest in helping her? Right. What, what, this doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Why are you ignoring her and having us get annoyed by all her crying when you could just tell her an answer and make her go away? And Jesus doesn't give them an answer. (laughs) (laughs) And so right away, you're like, well, man, just like the disciples, I'm kind of weirded out by this. What's Jesus up to? Then he goes into the house. She comes into the house. She falls at his feet. Please, please help. And then Jesus lays out like a a zero, you know, some game. All right. Well, here's the thing, right? Sorry, sister. Uh, Miracles are like bread. It's like food, right? I got to feed my kids. That's just, you know, good, uh, normal, common sense logic. If I give it to them, then I can't give it to you. And frankly, you know, as we Jews like to say, you're a dog. And so since you're a dog, let's think about this logically, right? I, as a parent, would be a pretty bad parent if I gave the food to the dogs rather than my children. So that would not make a very good parent. And so that would not make me a very good kind of messianic individual here. So I hope you understand, but I can't give it to you. And well, what does the woman do? The woman goes ahead and basically rebuts Jesus' logic. She says, you're wrong. That's not the way it works. Your way of thinking through this is flawed because, in fact, the dogs sometimes end up eating the crumbs that the very uncareful children are eating. They fall down to the ground, and eventually the dogs will eat them up. So, sorry, some part of that food does end up getting to the dogs, even if you gave it to the children. So you can definitely end up giving a little bit to me. Now, what's fascinating is the basic premise. The woman has constantly been trying to get Jesus' attention. Jesus has basically toyed with this woman to keep her in this state, has given her this illogical argument, which she rebuts. And as soon as she rebuts it, he says two versions. One in Mark is, because you said this, then you have guaranteed the miracle. In Matthew, he says, because you had faith, your miracle you've asked for will be given to you. What's fascinating then is, right, what is the faith here, right? It's what Mark said is what was said, but what was said isn't what we traditionally think of faith. We don't traditionally think of faith in the sense of like rebutting someone. We think of faith as like, oh, I had faith. I believed, right? Right. But in one sense, the woman does have faith. She believes that what Jesus is in fact doing is not actually what Jesus means. And she believes that in her rebutting Jesus, Jesus will recognize her logic, that Jesus is someone who makes sense and will actually care, right? There's all these affirmations, not about 
the traditional way of thinking about God, such as, you know, you would expect from evangelical circles. But you have here instead this deep affirmation about Christ being better than the way Christ is being presented to her in that moment. And in fact, in um, I was just reading in one of the Gnostic epistles, uh, which by no means do I give them any credence spiritually for the most part, but they're like any Christian. Like they, they have their beliefs that are weird and so, um, and they have really great stuff in them too. Like the Gospel of Philip has stuff that's just beautiful. You almost wish it was in the New Testament. Right. But the thing is, you can read these books just like you read an evangelical pastor. There will be stuff in it you just dislike, and there will be stuff in it that inspires you. Um, but in this, uh, I think it's the epistle of James or the Apocryphon of James. A fascinating thing, Peter and James are discussing with Jesus. And Peter, he just says, look, Jesus, I don't get this. Because in the narrative, basically, Jesus was going ahead and like he was telling them, all these good things, and then they'd be all excited, and then Jesus tells them all these bad things, and they're all like, but it just contradicts everything you just said. And kind of this goes back and forth. And so then Peter goes, what in the world are we supposed to do, Jesus? Like, Jesus is saying, I'm about to leave. And he's like, wait, what are we supposed to do? (laughs) You said this good stuff, and then you say these bad stuff. And what are we supposed to believe? And Jesus replies back and says, well, I mean, come on, haven't you been around me long enough to figure this out? You keep the good and you ignore the bad. Like this is a test, right? Like this is a test as to whether you really know me. Do, can you figure out what is actually who I am? If you knew me, then you'll figure that out. You'll see the trajectory I should be going down. Right. And it's really fascinating because it's like one of the only references I know of in ancient literature from Christians that demonstrates that they understood this principle of like saying no to God and understood it in that kind of an explicit sense. So I doubt that this is a Gnostic, this is not a Gnostic idea. It's just the Gnostics are the only ones who spelled it out in a story. But this is like a traditional idea. You also see this with Paul. Paul does this as well with like um, the issue of in 1 Corinthians 7, when he's discussing about marriage, he goes ahead and says that uh, I, but not the Lord, you know, not the Lord, but I give you this direction. And um, it was on divorce because Jesus had banned divorce outside of only unchastity. And Paul said, well, actually, you know, you need to increase that. What if your Gentile partner doesn't want to be married to you anymore because you're Christian? Well, then that would be toxic to stay married because you're creating an unpeaceful situation. So Paul says, because Jesus's trajectory was towards peace, and because peace is the goal, then it makes sense we should disregard what Jesus said explicitly, in order to go towards what Jesus was pointing towards implicitly. And so like this logic has been in Christianity for a very long time. What my book is really trying to do is to bring it to the forefront of our consciousness so that we're aware that we're practicing this as like a spiritual discipline, that we're understanding that this is something we choose to do. It's not just, I don't like this, so I don't believe it. Because there may be good things you dislike, uh, just like Jonah, which are actually, you know, you probably should be paying more attention to that thing you dislike because that's really important. But it's important that you're consciously aware of it so that you don't fall into the trap of making the kinds of wrong arguments that some Bible characters do because they misunderstand God's character. And that if there's anything that my book is really trying to say, it's not that the inerrancy debate is wrong in principle, it's wrong in its application. Inerrancy is to do with God's character and his heart. 
That's what really matters in scripture. As for his words, those are up for question because as scripture demonstrates, God has a habit, at least at least as the stories go, of testing whether or not people know who his character is, usually the most faithful people. And even if you don't believe that that's true because you're like, I'm too liberal, I don't take these stories that seriously, all right. But nonetheless, we live in that kind of an analogous situation. We live in a world in which it's very hard to know whether or not we're perceiving God accurately. Even when people say, well, look at nature and you'll see God. Well, I see lots of death and destruction and animals eating each other. And there's plenty of stuff there that can go in two different directions. So even there, you're stuck with the situation of saying, where is God in this? So whether you take these stories as literal and you understand this as like something God actually has done, or whether you understand them in principle, it stays the same. You have to understand that at the core of all our fighting over the words of God, the real debate has nothing to do with the words. It has to do with what God are we serving? Who is Christ? When we say, what would Jesus do? WWJD, that phrase means a lot more than where most people take it. They take it like, well, yeah, what things would Jesus do? Right? But really, what would Jesus do points us towards what kind of Jesus would do the sorts of things that I'm imagining, right? Do I know what kind of Jesus I'm looking at? I'll figure out what kinds of things that Jesus does. But, you know, as many authors have pointed out, you, you know, ask your partner you're talking to what kind of Jesus they believe in, because you may believe in a very different Jesus than the person you're speaking to. People have different conceptions of who God is. And some people's conception of Jesus looks analogous to Satan. Right. And that's a, I've had those conversations where I'm like, you're, I mean, like I'm thinking you're genuinely describing something that's much more analogous to Satan than it is analogous to anything right. the Bible is depicting about Christ. Yeah. I mean, what would Jesus do? Well, who is Jesus? You know, Jesus would kill all the gays. Oh, okay. Well, that's my version of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't think there's anything that could support that version of Jesus in the gospels. No, but I mean, you know, what was it? Westboro Baptist church. <laughs> but, that, but that's also the problem too. When people don't elevate God's character to that level and they don't make that the hermeneutical principle that they're relying on to help guide them. Well, what ends up happening? They try to equalize everything. Everything's mm-hmm. equal. And when that happens, they have to say, well, God is said to be hateful over here and God is supposed to be loving over here. Oh, okay. Well then that just means God can hate perfectly. I mean, at some point you have to take a step back and realize right. that is not possible. You cannot say, and, and I mean, theologians have always known this throughout church history. You cannot say that God can make a square, a circle, right? Or a, he can't make a square circle. Sure. He right. could turn the square into a circle. He could turn the circle into a square, but it changes. You can't say that they're both true, you know, because it's illogical. And, you know, God can do all things, but illogical things don't make sense to say God can do. In the same sense, you don't say that God can illogically have two completely polar opposite attributes. You can't say God is the devil and God is also, you know, perfect love. One cancels the other out. But evangelicals, because they are not trying to take in this sort of a a principle, they're not giving emphasis to something as the important factor that they point in the direction of, they're led astray in all kinds of directions. And probably that's the best illustration of what Paul says, or I mean what the, the letter of Timothy says when it says like, oh, they have tickling ears, you know, for all kinds of doctrines. 
Mm -hmm. right? Conservatives like to say that phrase, like, oh yeah, you just have tickling ears for mercy. It's like, no, 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 no. The tickling ear part probably is best described as people who just literally cannot differentiate between verses, cannot differentiate between different perspectives of God. So they're just trying to combine them all. Whatever one they like just goes to, it all goes in crazy directions because there is no trajectory. There's no yeah. direction. Sorry. Our culture doesn't allow for nuance anymore. And no, nuance, you know, when, when, so, you know, tell anybody, have anybody give you their life story and then you just boil it down to, so basically you're this. They'll be like, well, no, I mean, some, yes, I have, that's elements of my story. So whenever we lock people into boxes of like, oh, that guy's a jerk. Like somebody like, well, you know, tell him that. It'd be like, I can be a jerk, but I'm also this. And we instinctively know that nuance and circumstance helps define who we really are. But the moment you go to God, nuance and circumstance for a lot of evangelicals just goes right out the window. And it's infuriating to try to have a logical conversation with people who don't allow it. And especially when the word was made flesh, when logic was made flesh, that Jesus is logic itself. That's yeah. the part that's just like, Literally. come on. Literally. And since the whole universe runs on a logical system, God and logic are equivalent. Like I've actually had conversations with Christians who have gone ahead and told me, well, yeah, but God isn't logic. Logic isn't God. Like that, they're not the same thing. God's more than that. It's like, no, 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 it's not more. Like logic <laughs> is like his system, right? Like this it is, is how Christ. makes sense. This is the, like when the Bible talks about God overcame chaos, he conquered the chaotic dragons of the sea. When you have those mythic stories, right? What is the point? What defeats chaos? Chaos is where nothing adds up things begin to go in, in random directions, right? Logic is this ability to reign in the chaos. This is like a core belief in the Bible about who God is. He's the one who brings the order. order All things were made through it and held logic. together by it. Right? So it's like, you understand, this is the problem with the idea of a fallen mindset. Like the idea like, oh no, we're so fallen. We're so wrong that our view and understanding of what's right is wrong. And when you go that direction, then what's logical is discounted because, well, it's your understanding of logic. And I mean, no doubt, I don't, because I'm a human being and have a brain doesn't mean I can figure out every mystery that ever existed. I mean, you know, only the Enlightenment uh, founders were, and those that follow in their <laughs> footsteps were that arrogant about what they thought they could achieve. But nonetheless, you should be able to get something. Right. If, if you're in the shared reality, just like scientists figure that they can figure stuff out because they're in that reality and they just got to do tests, right? There should be a way and a core conviction that, you know, what you believe can't be nonsense. Right. <laughs> it might, it's true. Some things might appear to be nonsense, but if you can right. literally demonstrate that this is not just like, it only, it's not just a cultural issue. This isn't just because we don't know enough right now, but if you and literally lay it out that what you're trying to argue is just downright illogical, then the truth of the matter is you're, it doesn't mean necessarily that your belief's core convictions are wrong, but it probably definitely means that the way that you put those convictions together is definitively wrong. And so you should fix it. I use the example of saying like a lot of people confuse logic with reason. True. And so I use the example yeah. of like, what's the difference between logic and reason? So there's no reason why Donald Trump would dial into this phone call right now, right? It's unreasonable. But if he did, it's not illogical. There, yes, Donald Trump probably has access to 
hack Facebook, our messenger, where I sent you the link for this. And he could, for some reason, he could click on that link and he could suddenly appear up in this interview and say, hey guys, I saw you're doing an interview and I want to be here. There's no logical reason why Donald Trump can't show up on, but there's no reasonable. So logic means, yes, it can happen. There would be a sequence of events. It is very clear. Reason is the thing that people want. And so they want to find all the reasons for God as opposed to the logic of God. And that is where I think saying no to God, it puts a line between those two things. And, and for me, the, the, you know, I'm, I have one last question for you and I'm tempted to answer it myself, but this is an interview of you. So <laughs> I would be very um, interested in hearing your answer as well. What does say, you know, okay, so great. Somebody reads your book. Somebody goes, holy moly, this has changed my world. And they've learned that saying no to God is an element of relationship with God or an element. And, they, and they, they've walked away kind of like understanding there's a goodness and a power in, in that kind of dynamic. What is the outcome? of somebody who's learned how to say no to God? What do you view as that energetic new reality that somebody can walk in? That's a challenging question to answer, but basically what is your, what's the goal on the back end of somebody who lives this way? I think that at its core, right? When you affirm this kind of view, what you're really affirming deeply is a super empowered understanding of the spirit's role in the church. So when you read in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I can't teach you all truth, the Spirit is going to, the Comforter is going to come, you know, that will lead you into, the, the, into all truth that I can't give you now. And when Jesus says, you will do greater things than I have done, right? It's at that point that you start to see the distinguishment between the historical Jesus and, you know, the universal Christ, the, the logos that continues, the, the reigning theological Christ that we worship and is alive today. It transcends the mere historical incarn- incarnation that he had. And when you, you realize that, you realize, okay, so many evangelicals and other Christian groups will try to look at the, the historical Jesus and say, okay, it's this that gives us the perfect image of, of what God would say and do. But the truth is, when you start to realize that it's the character and not the actions or the words, you start to realize that his words and actions are limited by the time and scope he lived in. And when you understand that, just as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 7, then you're looking to say, okay, but what was the character there? And that character now becomes my ability to discern with the Spirit what trajectory that's going to start walking in. And that may lead us to do, quote unquote, greater things than Jesus by beginning to take that in a direction that the historical Jesus did not have the opportunity to do in the three years of ministry he had, but it's exactly where Christ is taking us now as a church and washes to push us. Wait, that man, my words washes there. (laughs) Washes. Wishes to take us in the present. So, you know, a good example of that would be slavery. You know, we have rejected much of what the Bible says in regards to slavery, even without consciously realizing it anymore presently. Right. But certainly the abolitionists knew. Many Christian abolitionists understood that they were rejecting the Bible texts that promoted slavery in support of those texts that seemed to point in a totally opposite direction. It's important then to realize that if you're going to have that sort of central spirit-led ideal 
in my view, where that takes you to is to realize that you don't know everything. It's the spirit that's leading and not necessarily yourself. So you don't want to fall into the trap of just God becomes whatever you want. But at the same time, there is a central role here, right? The paradox is the Bible can't control the spirit. But on the other hand, the Bible is specifically there to give you some sense of trajectory for where the spirit really would go versus where the spirit can't go. And that's why it's really important that in my book, I try to explore both the positive uh, stories that people say no to God and the negative stories, because there is a balance there that has to be achieved. Anything can't go precisely because God is a God of logic. There's a trajectory God is going. If you affirm God is love, there's a direction you're heading. It can't be going the other. So you have to have these checks in place to understand that like, if you start to get ideas that the spirit is taking you in an unloving direction, and you believe the spirit is supposed to be going in a loving direction, well, you know something might be going wrong, right? Then you start to check yourself. So what I hope that like this kind of a vision presents to a Christian is that they are in a dynamic, intimate relationship with God, that God wants to use them as a prophetic voice for their time, for their place, to speak both against the images of God that they think are contradictory to who God's character is, to stand up for who they think God is, and also to be challenged. You know, Jacob does affirm God as a blessing, but he he has to wrestle through the whole night uh, with the curse. And I think like, um, I'd say a number of progressive Christians kind of come to where they are in the hopes that basically they don't have to wrestle anymore, that, you know, they found the safe space that they can just park themselves in and and just look for the affirmations. And the truth is that isn't what the scripture says. Even when it's promoting the idea that you can reject the the bad views of God, you have to wrestle with the ideas because the truth is until you wrestle, you won't really learn where you stand with them and you won't really understand your own convictions. I think it's kind of like Albert Camus talks about in the sense of like, you can't allow yourself as the rebel to give way to the revolution. Because once you provide the opportunity to say, well, I'm going to enact the revolution and stop the rebellion, you lose all the core convictions you held. And you often end up just repeating all the same mistakes that you were fighting against. Uh, Camus' belief is what you have to do is you have to stay the rebel. You have to continue to fight for what you believe in, not for the purpose of winning, but for the purpose of defending those things that you're fighting about. And in that sense, you preserve your humanity and prevent, you know, things from going terribly wrong. And, you know, I think you mentioned, you know, at the beginning about philosophy, I'm writing a more academic version of this book, but I do already in the story, I think it's like the last chapter, the first part in the current book, Saying No to God. I talk about how these ideas have been presented by a number of people. Paul Tillich has talked about these ideas, Karl Barth, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, all of them have at different times in their careers recognized this principle that the God beyond God is actually what we're worshiping, is actually the point at which we're looking to, the character of God, not just the image that we construct to try to understand God. And I mean, Martin Luther and John Calvin, surprisingly, also understood this point. And Luther 
understood this as the great game or test that God played with his faithful to understand whether or not they knew who God was. And Luther said, if God comes to me and says, I'm rejecting you, you know, you're too fallen, I'm not interested in you anymore. He said, I would not have to accept it because God said it. I would have to fight against him even more strongly than ever before, precisely because I know that God would not say these things. And so I would be forced to be in this position. I think and hope that people can, by recognizing this really important difference that what's really inerrant is God's heart, not his words, we can finally escape this circle game that we're all playing where we just keep talking past each other. And we can finally start utilizing scripture in a really appropriate and helpful way, not a disruptive or kind of meaningless way that just kind of, we're not going anywhere. We're not, we can't even talk across the aisle between liberals and conservatives because we're too busy talking past each other at the same moment. We have to find Mm -hmm. that middle ground. And I think the middle ground is if we can direct our eyes towards God's heart, as opposed to God's words, we can finally begin to actually figure out how to interpret God's words. I love it. The God beyond God, because that is saying no to God. And I would dare, I would rephrase, I've not heard anywhere near that you're saying, say no to the ultimate, the God beyond God. You're no. saying, say no to the God in, that's in front of God. The one that we've constructed, the one that we are engaging with the idea of God that we have been presented with the ideas that, and that there's a, pure, less humanized or less, a less constructed version of God that is more the very nature, the very heart of God. The one that, you know, did God acquiesce to Moses or did God acquiesce to the God beyond God? I love that concept. And I think that's to me what I would have said, you know, when people say no, when they learn how to say no to God, what they're really, it's an introduction to freedom. Right, and I came that you, he came that you, to set us free, and and freedom, not from God. There's nowhere you can go where He's not. That's not the point. It's freedom from the constructs, freedom from, uh, and freedom to give yourself uh, the permission to question, to fight, to argue, to say, you know what, God, I understand that there might be some challenges around things like the LGBTQ stuff, but. I know there there's some good people. I know that they are worthy of love. I know that they are worthy of an opportunity to be in fellowship. And I don't know what to do with all those things, but there's a God beyond God that I know you are. And yes, I might have these verses or yes, I might have these concepts, but I have these other verses and these other concepts. And I'm going to give myself the freedom to know that I can question and I can have a conversation. It may take me 20 years to figure out what I really believe and what I really know to be right. But in the meantime, I'm going to wrestle and it's okay. And I'm going to give myself freedom to know that you're not going to just toss me out and on the curb because I'm asking questions. Yeah, and no, it's, it's very interesting. Jack Derrida, who's a very famous French philosopher for those that don't know, and, and he's the one who kind of gave us the term deconstruction. It's very interesting. I, I'm just, just going back over... Um, John Caputo's book, What Would Jesus Deconstruct? And it's so interesting to think about the way that Derrida proposes how deconstruction works, which is very different from how popularly people are perceiving it, which is that the only reason deconstruction happens, it's not something we choose to do. It's something that's 
auto deconstructed by the very fact that the constructed thing is in the light of what is the undeconstructible thing. So basically right. to illustrate this, he uses the idea of justice and law. So you have justice, which is this thing that's not really a thing. It doesn't exist. You can never point to justice. There's nothing tangible that's called justice. It's just this call on people. And you have laws, but laws, while they're supposed to point or enact what is just, they themselves can never be identical with justice. So right. the laws are constantly being deconstructed by the justice which they're trying to achieve. And so you may enact laws that you think are, are pointing towards justice, but then a hundred years later, the circumstances change and those same laws are now unjust. They are right. the contrary to justice. So the very fact that it can be deconstructed, Derrida argues, is freedom. Like this is the great good news, is that there is this undeconstructible thing that's like, it's undeconstructible. So it's not constructed. So it's not a thing. It doesn't exist. And yet it's there calling on the laws to be made. But it's also the very thing that deconstructs them so that when they become unjust, they can change. They can be moved. Every time a judge sits to give a position, Derrida argues, he's not just saying, well, this is what the law says. So there you go. Because each circumstance a new case brings, brings a whole new bunch of circumstances that new change. Ones the nuance of how you understand. So justice and law, I think, is a great example of like God and the scriptures and what we're dealing with. You know, you have God, which is this undeconstructible thing that you can't tangibly grab, you can't tangibly see, and yet it's calling on you constantly and auto-deconstructing all of these ideas that we have about God, particularly and constantly to keep us growing in the right trajectory that God calls us towards. Beautiful. I love it. Well, I mean, we, it's been a mouthful for sure. And uh, we are way over 45 minutes, which is love. I love it. So, but um, I don't know, to wind it down, do you have any kind of parting? Um, well, before we get there, where can people find you? I know I talked about your website and go ahead. Yeah. So people can find me on Twitter at uh, the letter M Cortman. M-K-O-R-P-M-A-N. Um, be happy to connect there and talk. I'm never shy. Um, <laughs> and uh, I also have a Facebook page, Matthew J. Cortman, that people can go to. Obviously, my website you mentioned is MatthewJCortman.com. So I encourage anybody to reach out, take a look at things. You can find my book pretty much wherever books are sold. Um, right now, at the moment we're talking with covid 19 craziness going on. Um, right. Uh, Connecticut just had its, uh, its own shelter in place and Governor Cuomo in New York has gone ahead and done it. Basically, right now, my book is available digitally on sale for 99 cents. I and a number of other authors that my publisher acquired decided that uh, because of the COVID-19 crisis and stuff, we would discount the ebook in order to um, give people some cheap reading material for their time. So if somebody's perhaps, I don't know when this episode will launch, but at least until the end of April, the book should be available for 99 cents. Okay. Um, if you're listening to this after April, 2020, I'm sorry, <laughs> the book will still be cheaper, uh, but just not that cheap. But yeah, I, I hope that people uh, will reach out and connect, but 
I mean, really the way that I've often ended or talked about things with other hosts is I really hope that people care a lot less about what I have to say in this book and they really pay attention to the principles. I've had a couple conservatives. I've had a lot of conservatives who have loved this book and liberals who said, oh my goodness, this restored my, my interest in scripture. But I've had a couple conservatives who've read the book and they've gotten lost in the details of like positions that I gave. So like right. the book is split into two parts. One part is like the idea of saying no to God. And the other part is like a bunch of applications I think about saying no to God. And the problem with that is I've made it very clear throughout the book, feel free to disagree with how I apply things, right? I'm not here to tell you this is the only way in which you say no to God in our present circumstances. These are just ways that I'm presenting potentially with some biblical arguments as to why I think that it would work. If you don't think it works, feel free to disagree and say no to me. <laughs> That's kind right. of the point of the book. Um, I'm not your authoritative Say no here. to Cortman. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's, the, that's the implicit uh, sequel uh, or the implied uh, countertitle to the book. Right. But I've actually had some conservatives who genuinely read the book and then they, their only complaints were about like arguments I made about the second part. Well, there's, there's so many people that I love how you said, you know, listen to the principles because a lot of people don't want principles and they want answers. Yeah. If you're looking for answers, then you might be upset with what Matthew presents. If you're looking yeah, exactly. for principles, that's a whole different discussion. So, and it's funny too, cause it's like, there's not, I've not, for those two people I've had, they don't give a single complaint about the idea of saying no to God. I, not like in all their critiques, there's not one that was like, and this is a problem. And I just, I have to sit there. They're like, this is a terrible book. But I'm like, but you have no complaint about the main premise of the title. Right. So I'm confused. Like, or, I mean, is, should I take it as a compliment? You've come to accept the premise. You just don't accept the application. But then it's like they misunderstood. Like, it's not mm -hmm. about the application. I have to provide an application. I have to. I wouldn't be honest with who I am and, and what I'm doing if I didn't show an example of how I myself could think through how you would apply these things. But at the same time, the book's purpose and point is really to lay down this kind of hermeneutic, this way of interpreting that people can be freed to use to kind of feel comfortable knowing that the questions that they ask of scripture and of theology and of the world have a real basis in their faith. This is, if nothing else, this book should hopefully begin to open up conversations for people to go, oh, actually it's a core conviction in my faith to be able to do this. This is not some new, fancy, you know, modern thing that I'm doing to try and salvage my faith. If an atheist comes to you and says, your faith is, is purely about obedience, you'll have the real ability to turn to them and say, oh, I totally respect that you don't, you're not part of my faith, but man, I got to tell you, that is actually not a core conviction of either Judaism or Christianity. Yeah, that's really cool. I think uh, there's this community, the New Age Christian community is filled with, with people who, you know, have never, the Bible's never really been a big question. They're kind of like, yeah, whatever. They're, they're, they've always been more intuitive driven or whatever. But there are a handful in this community, I'd say maybe a a quarter of them or a third of them where the Bible was a beloved inerrant source of truth. And yet their heart and their logic started to push against certain things. And so they went down this journey and 
for lack of a better way to say it, they've kind of had this like, but what do I do with that book over there? Yep. And so for those of you who you know, you've, you've embraced a new age Christian concept or you're embracing it or considering it, but one of your big challenges is what do I do with this book over here known as the Bible? You know, check out saying no to God. I, um, there's a few different ways to look at the Bible that kind of break you free of the shackles of it and allow you to appreciate it in a new light. I very much appreciate the scriptures, but they're not my, you know, as you said in the beginning, you know, having a relationship with Jesus, having a relationship with doctrine, they're not the same thing. And it is a discussion worth having. And it is something that is freeing for those of you on a journey. So check out his book, Uh, Matthew. I'm really appreciate your time. Glad to get to know you. And as you said, we are recording this episode during the, uh, the COVID-19 weekend. This is what is it's uh, March 21st. So it's the first week that uh, things are happening. If we go into national quarantine, it hasn't happened yet, but I saw an article giving rumors of that. So interesting days we live in. Very. Uh, any, any, uh, any other parting words? No, just, I hope that people stay safe and healthy and, uh, that, uh, this book also helps them to realize why it's uh, a big load of, you know what, when people try to say, oh, this is a punishment from God, or this is, uh, this is the kind of stuff, right? It's like, no, we all say no to that. Yeah, say no right. to uh, things that uh, mar the character of our friends, and that includes God. Right. Well, I love it. Yeah, so <laughs> God is out to punish the world through COVID-19, then they're probably not the type of people listening to the New Age Christian podcast in the first but place. maybe they should be. Right, exactly. So <laughs> lots of it. Lots of freedom. So uh, that's what I, I endeavor to hand out is freedom. At that, you know, control and law and rules, control mechanisms are like more and more becoming the thing that, that I, I can smell those a mile away. And so this is another source, another a book that, that hands out freedom to those who need it in a particular way. And that's what I love about having people who communicate different elements. They, they very much the same core message, but with different language or from a different story or a different angle. So if this resonates and you're wondering, man, saying no to God, that does, I kind of feel like that embodies some of my story, then check out the book and maybe you'll, you'll, you'll find the scriptural evidence and a little bit firmer foundation to stand on when you talk with your friends and family, since you're all going to be quarantined because of COVID-19 anyway. (laughs) Check it out. And I will, this will be airing later, but I'll put it on my uh, Facebook group. Do you have a code or promo code or anything or where? No, no, it's just all wherever my book is sold as an ebook, it will be 99 cents. All right, cool. At the end of it, send me like a link or something I can put on the the Christian group and tell them everybody, hey, I just did this interview and go check it out. So thank thank you you for your time, man. I really appreciate being on the show and with everyone who listened. uh, I can't see you, but I feel you and uh, my blessings, uh, my prayers are with you. And uh, I hope that uh, throughout this whole time, you're all blessed uh, and also by whatever future shows that you do after me with some probably fantastic guests. Right. Well, thanks, man. Well, all right, guys. Love you. Hope you have enjoyed this interview with Matthew Cortman and saying no to God. And uh, go check out the book. And if you uh, find anything interesting that you got questions about, hit us up on the Facebook community, community on the private group. And uh, I'll send Matthew an invite to join the private group so you guys can ask him directly. And oh, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll get uh, grow this thing and 
get the discussion going. So see you guys on the next episode. Talk to you later. Mm-hmm.